For the uh, next three weeks, we'll actually be in uh, Matthew 24 and 25, so kind of prepare to sit there for a little bit. I appreciate your, your prayers while I was away. I don't think I've taken two weeks. It was like, yeah, I was, forgot. Vacations are a good thing. So the first, the first part of my time away I had shared was a, a guided Sabbath retreat, um, the first of uh, six that I'll be taking over the next two years with a group um, located over in California. Um, God did a number of things, which is always good news, um, little at a time. Um, I'll just share one. Um, my, my first um, directed Sabbath retreat at the time when I went away for a block of time, uh, the very first time I ever did that, I've, I've been away before, but in terms of with a group of people being led in a Sabbath retreat was in 1996. Um, it was uh, held at uh, San Francisco Theological Seminary in uh, Marin County, um, north of San Francisco. Um, and we, uh, it was five days. Um, it was actually much more strict than the one I just went to. It was actually, there's a discipline of silence um, that lasted all day for five days, except for from 4 p.m. until 7 p.m. each day, um, where we kind of had some time to talk as groups and eat dinner together, and then it was um, significant. So uh, during that time, though, it was interesting. God was, uh, there was a lot of things that God was stirring up in me during those years, and um, a lot of brokenness. And I was taking a walk, it took lots of walks, and... Um, I came, I think I've, sh I've shared this before, but I was taking a walk and I came across, I think it's like eucalyptus trees like we have out here. I came across this tree where a lot of bark was peeling off and um, I saw one of these pieces of bark laying there and I remember thinking to myself, my first thought was, that's my heart. And I just felt like God was stripping these, these hard layers off my heart and um, it was hard and painful as it always is and yet really good. It almost seems like, yes, I'm glad God's doing that. And I remember I picked this piece up this is 23 years old, or it's older than that. I don't know how old the tree was, but, um, and I've had this on my desk ever since then. So anyways, I'm, I'm in San Diego, Oceanside, um, the, two weeks ago, and um, praying, and we had some time, so I took a, took a walk. It was at a, an abbey, a Benedictine abbey I was held at, and so I went and I sat on a wall, and as soon as I sat down on the wall, I looked down, and at the bottom of my feet was this piece of bark. <laughs> And there was another, right in front of me, the same kind of tree again, and the bark is coming off, and it's sitting there, and, and um, I thought, all right, it's still ongoing. And um, <laughs> interesting, two things, um, two things came to mind. One is, um, I have so far to go. Um, there are so many more things God is still working on, and um, there's a part of that that's kind of hard, and there's a part of that that's, okay, that's, that's true, and... Um, there's, uh, there's still hardened places of resistance and self-sufficiency and that God wants to strip off. But then the second thought came to me is that God never quits. He's always pursuing us. And he's always doing that. And if he is not going to do that, it's just not going to happen. And so um, even 23 years later, he's still working on me. And even some of the same places he was working on there as well. And that is all really good news for all of us. Um, today we begin three weeks in uh, Matthew 24 and 25. Um, this is, uh, if you remember, our outline of Matthew with these, uh, these narratives, and each narrative is followed by a discourse. This is the fifth and final discourse um, in Matthew, and one that deals with future judgment and trouble, um, and uh, seems to deal with the seeming chaos that was going on um, at the time. Um, there are many, I'm sure, who 
um, thought that the weather events this past week were a sign of the end times. Um, my daughter's car in Flagstaff, she was out there trying to figure out what she'd do for a shovel. There's three feet of snow around her car. Um, and uh, the, uh, I don't know if you saw the headline in the Daily Star yesterday, it says we might as well be Michigan. Um, my brother was actually vacationing in Scottsdale for two weeks to get away from Michigan. Um, I sent him a little a picture of that, and he was offended, actually, <laughs> as though Michigan's like one place you don't want to be from. I'm like, oh, come on. Sorry. More seriously, we live in a, a volatile world, um, and though many, many, many generations before us have all thought the same, um, we look around and we see weather disasters, starvation, um, there are wars going on that we don't even know about and hear about even. Uh, genocide, a political upheaval, uh, not just locally, nationally, internationally, that happens. Horrendous abuse, um, and then even many in the faith and many churches that are just falling away, and there's all sorts of things that are happening that just disrupting, and you wonder what is going on around us. And we ask the question that the disciples ask here, um, what does it all mean? Where is this going? Uh, what's what's going to happen next? Is, is, is this it? Um, what is happening? This morning, I encourage us, especially as we go through these next three weeks, is perhaps ask some more important questions than, is this the end? Or what's God going to do next? Which is what we get interested in. And the more important questions are, how are we to live? Um, in, in light of what we see, what kind of people are we supposed to be? Um, how should we as believers in the midst of this place respond to the things that are happening around us? And when the world looks at us in the midst of all these things, uh, what do they see? What are they seeing? And what does that reflect in terms of their understanding of the God that we claim to love and to follow? Let's remember where we are in this gospel. We've, we had the story of the, the narrative section. We had Jesus riding into Jerusalem um, as a fulfillment of prophecy. He offers himself as king, and he offers his kingdom one more time to the nation. Um, and he inaugurates this final week of his earthly ministry. And we saw he went into the temple, which was this visible representation of the nation's faith, which had been corrupted. Um, it didn't represent the, the God at all, and it, was, it had been filled with all these things, and it had become not any longer a place of God's presence and prayer. And Jesus cleanses it and purifies it. Um, it's really a picture of the refining judgment that God is going to bring upon the nation um, for their lack of faithfulness and for their ongoing unbelief. And then we have the story of the, fithered, the withered, fithered wig tree, the, uh, the withered fig tree, um, the people uh, bearing no fruit. Um, and then we had these uh, things that John shared, these woes from our passage last week, that this idea that their, their unbelief had persisted and persisted and persisted. And as a matter of fact, you go back, it's thousands of years of this. And Jesus has been calling them freshly to himself, and they've refused to do that. All of this has transpired on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of this uh, final week of Jesus' life here on earth. And at the end of chapter 23, it gets said there, and as well as the other Gospels, it talks, it says, Jesus grieving, grieving as he looks at the city and grieving over their unbelief which finds its center in that city. So now Tuesday is drawing to a close here as we get this passage. 
Um, Jesus and a, a whole group of people are, are leaving the city as he did each day and returning to Bethany. Um, and they're, they're admiring the city, right? Which, which, is, uh, which is beautiful in this incredible place um, as they look at this, what they felt was this picture of all that God was doing. And we have here in chapter 24, 1 and 2, as they look at the city, it says, Jesus left the temple, and he was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, as you see in the other Gospels, they go, look how beautiful it is, which it was. Jesus answers them, you see all these things, don't you? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The disciples are admiring this incredible temple, which, as I said a number of weeks ago, within the Roman Empire, it was considered the greatest building in the Roman Empire at the time. Herod had just enlarged this place. Um, and uh, Jesus just made it clear, without the presence of God in that place, it is just stone and empty buildings and empty rooms. And it's all going to be thrown down. Interesting way to put a damper in a conversation, right? They're all leaving, like, look at this, this is awesome. And Jesus just, just puts his damper on it. And then he has something to say after that. And as they continue to walk, um, they get to the Mount of Olives. Interesting enough, that's the place where Jesus very soon is going to be ascended from. And where, when we looked at Zechariah back in this fall, it's the place where it says Jesus will come back to again. And as they get there, the disciples privately come to him and are wondering what's going on. And they have two questions here. The first question is, when is it going to happen? In other words, when's the temple getting torn down? That's their immediate question. And secondly, what are the signs of it? How can we know it's going to happen? What are the signs that it will happen? The disciples see that the destruction of the temple and the coming of the end of the age is all one event. They see it as one event. Um, Jesus is going to actually show us that it's not. But they, in their minds, see that the, the sign's going to happen, the temple's going to come down, and then there'll be the end. And they see it as happening, which is why when this all took place, they expected Jesus to be coming back right away. Paul, they were all expecting him to come back at any time. And Jesus proceeds to answer the second question first. He always does things differently. And then uh, later on, he'll answer the first question, and we'll get to that um, next week. Um, Chapter 24 and the, the parallel passage in Mark and Luke are, are prophetic in nature, which make them difficult. Um, and even among very, very conservative scholars, there's a variety of places um, they will land on this, these, this particular passage. So this morning, I, I kind of want to do an overview a bit of how do, we, how, do we, how do we enter into this passage, this kind of writing? Um, how do we interpret it? How are we going to look at it? Um, rather than really instructing us particularly on the text. And I'm going to share a couple of the basic approaches to this and kind of let you know where I'm going to go with it, where I kind of land with it, and uh, you can choose your path as you want. Um, and then second, we'll look briefly at verses 4 through 14 that Mike read. Um, and there are some instructions, some warnings for us here today that I just want to pay a little bit of attention to. Um, let me just say as we go into this, uh, we spend a lot of time in our service with the Word. Um, oftentimes our call to worship is... is from the word, our, our benediction, we have a scripture reading. A, a, a big chunk of time gets, goes to um, our, our walking through it because it matters. Um, and today, um, although I'm not going to be teaching this section as much, I'm going to be talking about how do we look at it. Part of our, our time in the word is for us to learn how to look at the word. 
The way we interpret, although in, like in this section, there's a couple different ways you can take this that I think are all, are all equally valid. And, and can, but in many places, most of Scripture, how we interpret it, where we come out of it, it's not neutral. It has impact on our life. It matters. And so it's important that we become students of the Word, that we, we wrestle with hard passages like this, that we begin to understand on our own. How do we take the Word and look at it and, and mind the things that God is trying to instruct us because it has very, very real impact on what we do. And the very fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had failed to do so for so long left them in a place that was so adrift that they, they hear what they heard in chapter 23. And we don't, we don't want to get there. We don't want to be in that spot. So we want to take careful attention to what God says here. So the next three weeks, today we're going to look at how do we view this text. Um, next week, we'll get into some of the details of this particular prophecy. And then finally, there's uh, three parables. I love Jesus. He, he, he teaches things, and then he tells stories that illustrate it. And so there's these three parables um, that we'll look at that will help unpack this text for us. The challenge in this particular text, the reason it's difficult to understand what's going on, is because in uh, chapter 24, verse 34, it says this. Jesus says at the very end, he says, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Which, and I think correctly, sounds as though this is going to happen within a generation, which is about 40 years. 45 years is considered a normal generation. Exactly, just about 40 years from when Jesus states this, in AD 70, Rome is going to come in and they're going to level the temple. Jesus just said all this stuff is going to come down and this is, that is, that's what's going to happen 40 years from this point. And so the disciples expected when this happens, the end will also come. But the end didn't come. We're, we're here a couple thousand years later. We are still waiting for Jesus to come. And so kind of like, what's going on in this text? What's Jesus referring to? Is it present? Is it all future? Is there a mixture here? Um, is this whole section just about something that already happened? Or is there yet more to come? And so there's basically four views on this whole section as it talks about this coming down to the temple, apparently, um, this, this, this destruction of Jerusalem, and of all these, these things and these signs that will happen that are fairly cataclysmic when you read through the section. It's, I told Mike, you got a great passage to read, you know, and it actually just gets worse as we read along. It says all these things happen. So what, how do we view it? There's basically four views that all come from very, very conservative scholarship. The first one is that this, this discourse is called the Olivet Discourse because it was spoken on the Mount of Olives. The first uh, viewpoint is that it is all future. It's a future, not just future for um, 80, 70, but it's all still none of this has happened yet. That everything Jesus talks about is talking about something that's still future for us. So even the, the destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70, wasn't really what Jesus is referring to here. He's referring to something else that's coming. Um, that comes from uh, those who have a background of, a, if you've heard of a dispensational approach to Scripture, that's where this comes from. That's kind of where I grew up in, that particular uh, frame of thinking. Um, they, they see much of the strong end-of-the-world type of language as only fitting the very final days, which... Um, which they would say have not yet come. The second approach um, is that the Olivet Discourse um, is solely something in our past. It all refers to what happened with Rome coming in 
and the events around AD 70. So Jesus was speaking about something that was going to happen in that generation, and everything here in this section that he speaks about is all for us, it's past history. And Jesus was warning that it was something that was very eminent and very, very present. And everything he says here in these next couple chapters um, refers to that time and its past history for us. Interesting, both approaches um, have scriptural precedent um, and good people that are behind it. Um, despite how horrendous the destruction of Jerusalem was, um, and much of the destru- destruction here taken literally has not yet happened, though, I think. Um, the, the, those who would say that it's still future would look at it and going, well, Jerusalem was destroyed, but some of the things it's saying here seem to be much greater than what happened at that time, that there's language here and description of things that have happened that didn't really happen at that point, which I think is actually correct. Um, the, uh, the wording here, if you read this and then you go and read like uh, some of the sections of First, Second Thessalonians, you read some of Revelation, it's like, there's a lot of parallel wording here that can make it seem like maybe some of these things have not happened. Um, there's a genre of uh, writing. Um, the scriptures are full of different kinds of writing, right? We have history. We have poetry. We have narrative. Um, there was a type of writing that was kind of called apocalyptic writing. Um, it's basically like you write things with big, broad strokes and lots of strong language to describe something and to bring something um, to point. Um, Writings that are are descriptive uh, or symbolic, writing that kind of seem over the top. If you ever told a story and you kind of give it over the top to give emphasis to it, that's what apocalyptic writing is, and there's lots of it in scriptures. Um, So wording can be used that is more extreme than what actually happens, but to give emphasis to what's taking place. And so there's many that think that that's what this is about, which is why... It, it all happened in AD 70, and it sounds worse than what happened there, but that was just the writer's style to describe what was going to happen, or Jesus' style in terms of writing here. Um, interesting enough, if you go to Isaiah, for instance, there is a section in Isaiah that talks about the destruction of Babylon. And it says that during that time, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be blotted out. It uses some really strong language about things that didn't literally happen but they're descriptive of the extreme events that happened around that time. And so many will say, like as I said here, that's what's happening here in this section. Jesus is using that kind of language to describe what happens in AD 70. And so it sounds like it's worse than it is, but that was just the way he was using his language here, and it could be. Um, before moving on to the other two views, as I said, there's questions raised because the destruction of Jerusalem happens, the temple is torn down, um, and uh, it is actually, it was a horrendous time. And so just historically, I want to describe kind of what happened during that so we understand, because when, when uh, I think when, when all that came down in 8070, I'm sure everybody who heard Jesus' words here thought about what he had said, because it describes much of what takes place. Historically, around 8063, 64, 65, right in there, when Paul was in prison in Rome, um, the empire was running out of money, Sounds familiar? And, um, and so they significantly increased taxes, which people just love, right? Um, particularly among the conquered nations. Um, and it brought uh, complaint, and it brought unrest. Um, and then uh, to get more money, the, the guy who was overseeing Judea at the time actually went into the temple in Jerusalem, and he took all the silver out 
in order to help fund the government. So that's, they weren't very happy about that as well. Um, and as the unrest increased, um, Rome decided to try to put down the unrest and almost 4,000 Jews right around AD 65 were all killed in Jerusalem um, as this is big massacre. And so in AD 66, there was actually a Jewish revolt. Um, you can read about it. Um, it. It was one of those things where there was so much unrest, it all just kind of came together and it actually overwhelmed uh, the Romans who were holding, um, holding that area at the time. Um, they, they expelled or killed the Roman troops out of Jerusalem, and then actually all the way up into Galilee, um, the, uh, the revolt with the Jews actually took control of almost all of what the area that Jesus had actually been preaching in at that time. Um, you've, if you've heard of Masada, it was a, it was a huge fortress that was the, the Romans used. Uh, a, group, a group of zealots, were actually a fairly small group, actually stormed Masada, which was crazy, and they took it, and they gained control of it. And so for a period of time, um, these Jewish revolters held the, the fortress Masada, a large part of Galilee, and actually held Jerusalem during that time. Um, Rome didn't like it, of course, um, and so they sent their full troops in. Um, and over a couple years' time, they regained control of most of the area, except for Jerusalem and except for Masada. Those two places were being held. Actually, Jerusalem, when closed up, was actually a, a pretty tight ship. It was hard to get in. Um, so they laid siege to Jerusalem for actually six months um, and were failing to get in. During that time, Nero, who was the, the, the emperor at the time, committed suicide. Um, and so his, uh, um, his general, um, the uh, the one who he had sent to work on, I can't remember the guy's name, um, he had to go back to Rome in order to, to take over control again. And, um, and so uh, it was Vespian, that was his name. And um, so Vespian, who now took control over for Nero, had to send somebody else. So there was a gap of time there. During that time, they kind of, uh, the, the Jews kind of fortified their spot a bit. And he sent Titus, uh, his general, to regain um, the city. Um, Titus attacked Jerusalem, and over a course of time, then they brought in all the war machines, all the modern stuff, um, and just barraged the city. And so these people are stuck in Jerusalem for these months and months and months. And remember, um, we looked at Passover time, that the city could sometimes swell to a couple hundred thousand people, and they're just packed in there. And they're being held inside this place as Titus attacks. Um, they eventually breached the one wall, and then a second wall, and then a third wall, and, um, and eventually took control of Jerusalem. It took three years later before they regained the control of Masada, but they did. Um, a contemporary historian, Josephus, um, wrote down the details about what had happened, but he describes um, them eating dead bodies of, of cannibalizing children in the city because people were starving to death. Um, when Rome actually took control um, there's numbers up to a million, but most of you think several hundred thousand people were actually killed. They killed everybody that was old. They killed the children. Um, a hundred thousand Jews were taken and enslaved, and they were scattered around the different uh, mines around, um, around the Roman Empire. And close to a hundred thousand, they say, were actually sent off to be like in the arenas just to be kind of slaughtered in front of people for their entertainment. It was horrific. Um, the, the, the whole nation, the Jews were just wiped out and dispersed everywhere as though they never existed at the time. 
Interesting enough, there's no mention of Christians in the records of those who were killed or enslaved. Um, it's interesting um, how God works in those ways. Um, the gospel needed to go out, and so um, there's persecution. Remember, Stephen is killed, um, James is killed, and it causes to happen what Jesus told them to do in the first place, spread out, right? And they scatter, um, and it's the persecution from the Jews that causes the Christians to scatter. And so when all this happens, guess there's, there's, there's not many left in Jerusalem. They've already scattered everywhere as the gospel tends to go out. Um, interesting, you wondered too if they heard as some of the signs started happening that things are not looking good for Jerusalem right now. You wonder if they remembered what Jesus says here, and they go, I think we need to leave. And they remembered, and they left. And as, as such, God protected the outgoing of the gospel. All that to say is um, what happened in AD 70 was horrific. And so um, we need to understand as we walk through this passage. Um, it is a horrific nature of this event. Um, as I said, I'm sure when it happened, they reflected back on Jesus' words that not one stone would be left upon another. Um, and it's for, uh, for that reason, I don't land on a view here that leaves that event out of this passage. I think Jesus was very much talking about this day that was coming within one generation. I also think he was talking about more than that. Um, it includes both. So there's a, um, so I don't include, I don't necessarily embrace the second view that it all happened in AD 70 and that's all Jesus is talking about. Let me just give you three quick reasons for that. Um, as I said, there's still much in this section that's going to sound way beyond what happened in AD 70, um, not to mention the fact that the second coming of Jesus shows up in this section as well, and that has not happened yet. Um, second of all, um, all through the Old Testament prophetic passages, we see prophecies that have dual meanings. So it talks about one thing, and it's about that one thing, but it also has a, a, a further meaning as well. So... Um, an example of that could be in Matthew 24, 15. Um, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and Jesus begins to talk about that, um, that had several meanings, actually. Um, Daniel, when he prophesied it, most people believe that he is referring um, to, um, it was it in 80, 60, 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, um, the Persians came in, and they, they uh, sacrificed pigs on the altar to desecrate the temple. Um, and most people believe that that's what Daniel was referring to because that's exactly what he's talking about. He was the abomination of desolation was in the temple. Um, others believe that it, it, then it also can be about eighty seventy when they desecrated the temple. They did all sorts of things before they burned it down and tore it down. Um, it could also refer to things that we look at in Revelation, which starts talking about the Antichrist and what he's going to do. So one prophecy can often have multiple fulfillments, which is why I think when Jesus talks here, I think he's going to be talking to them about what's going to happen in one generation. But he's also talking to us about things that are still, I think, further out. And then um, lastly, um, prophecies um, which look like one event can often have multiple events. So it's, it's just like we've, you, if you look at prophetic literature, we've talked about this before. You look out at a horizon, you see a mountain, um, I used to hike a lot um, in the North Cascades in Washington and go, we're going to get there. And you look out and you think, we're going to get that mountain. You get over one mountain, they all look like they're right, right next to each other. And it's like, ah, oh, the thing's another day's walk, right? So there's these huge gaps 
looking out extended, they all look like they're together, but they're actually there's big gaps in between them. We get that with Jesus when he goes um, in the temple and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads, and he talks about what Isaiah says about the, the, the release of captives um, and uh, the healing of people. And Jesus says, these scriptures are fulfilled here right now because Jesus fulfilled them. And yet, if you go into the next phrase, which Jesus did not read, it talks about coming judgment and destruction and that because that had not yet happened. So even in one verse, it can refer to something happens here and then also talk about something that might happen a couple thousand years later. So it makes prophecy interesting and, uh, and confusing, which is why we always come back to what's it supposed to instruct our hearts? Not so much do I know everything, but how does it change me? How does it impact me when I begin to hear these things? So for that reason, I think that this section here actually has more to do. It's, it's about 80, 70, but it has to do with more than that um, as well. So in light of that, there's two other approaches to this particular passage. Um, and one, one is that scholars will take the passage and divide it into two sections. The first section um, that we just read and continuing on up to maybe verse 28, they argue about 28 or verse 35, is all talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then there's a, a second section, nice and neat and clean, that talks about the coming of Jesus and the final days that we're still looking ahead. That's one approach. And the last approach is, is to look like it, at it like a pot pie. Um, and I love pot pies. So um, that it's all mixed together. Um, and there are references within it that have to do with Jerusalem that also refer to the end days. There's a second coming gets mixed up. And uh, there's a mixture of the two events um, are all put together. And much of it having a dual fulfillment as though uh, the destruction of Jerusalem was just a precursor to what's going to happen. And what has actually happened even in our history between then and now, there have been things that have happened in the world that, that are like, wow, what's going on here? There's this, we see these horrific um, things that happen going, what's that about? Where people have frequently asked, is this the end? You can look back in our history um, of even our own country and just kind of look at it and think, there were things that have happened in periods of time. During World War II, my, my parents going, like, what's going to happen? I remember they talked about it looked like Germany was just going to take over, and it's like, what is going on? Is this the end? Um, those things have happened before. So I, I look at that the whole passage as being one long description um, of distress and tribulation that happens in the world between the time of Christ and his return. Um, the destruction of Jerusalem serves as one example of that and a precursor of more to come, um, some of which our world experiences today. Um, and also some of the climatic events that will happen down the road. So I kind of see it as a bigger picture of all the kinds of things that are going to happen between the time of Christ and when he comes back again. And you can totally disagree with that and go a different direction, but that's kind of the way I've approached it. By the way, uh, we might look around and think, it's not that bad, you know? Things are okay today, and um, these are not difficult times. Um, perhaps it must just be about 80, 70. That was horrific. But I tell you, things are not so great. Um, you can go back to the first and second century, ask the Christians during that time what life was like when they were just being persecuted, just almost wiped out as uh, Rome was trying to wipe them out. Go, um, uh, you can gather around different parts of our, of our world today where people are experiencing are, are just the worst of things that we could imagine. 
And they would wonder, is this the end? If they're believers in those places, as, even as martyrdom continues um, today. So as I said, I take the fourth view specifically. I think when trouble started happening in Jerusalem around AD 65, the people definitely thought about Jesus' words and saw that things were happening just as he had said um, and responded to them and were encouraged. And, and I think that when it got destroyed, which it did in that generation, I think they were waiting for Jesus. I think that they were, he's coming back. Um, of course, he didn't. Um, and as I said, the same scenario has happened many times since and some point ahead um, to the fullest fulfillment of what Jesus spoke about here um, that will take place when he returns again. So no matter where you land on this, um, I think we can say two things for sure. Um, in the world, uh, there will be tribulation. Jesus promised it, and it will continue on. And second, that he is uh, coming again for us. There will be tribulation, and Jesus will come again for us. So that's a lot of words about looking at prophecy. Read through the whole, the whole chapter and just let it kind of flow over you. It's a hard chapter. It talks about hard things. Um, interesting, Jesus, this is important to him as he spoke it. I just want to look briefly at verses 4 through 14. Um, I read them more like a summary of, like here's a summary of everything, and then he goes into more details about it. I kind of see like, like a thesis statement. Here's kind of the big picture of what's going to happen, both for them in that generation, but also for us. And then the further verses are more the details about what's going to happen um, down the road. Um, it's a summary that includes a warning, um, and it talks about the signs to watch out for. Remember, the disciples said, when is it going to happen, and what are the signs? Interesting, later on, Jesus is going to tell you, by the way, I'm not going to tell you when it's happening. As a matter of fact, I don't even know. Um, only, only the Father knows. But I will tell you some of the signs, and so that's what he begins to do here. And our question we want to ask is, how do we respond as we look around at things? How do we respond around us? And um, what should we be responding to as we read it? Interesting, Peter says in his book, as he looks ahead to the future, he says, since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, he says, what kind of people should we be? Um, we tend to look at what's going to happen, what's happening around us, um, and we try to figure this out, and Peter says, your, your main attention should be, in light of that, the shortness of time, um, what kind of people should we be? The book of Revelation, the, the third verse right into the book, it's got this big book full of all sorts of details, but the third verse says, blessed is the one who hears these words and reads them and the one who heeds what's written in it. The purpose of Revelation is not to fill out all the details, not that we shouldn't look at those. The purpose is to change us. It's to change our hearts, to, to heed what's said in there. And then Jesus, in this section, is going to tell us, as you see all these things, as you hear these things, he says, be ready. He's going to say, be watchful and be prepared. So it's supposed to impact us. And so here, actually, in these very first verses, Jesus is going to tell us four things that we're going to face, all of us, things to watch out for, things to prepare our hearts for, so we are the kind of people that actually, in the midst of it, have something to offer the world who will be going through the same thing. And the first one is deception, verses 4 and 5. It says, Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray, which means that we're all prone to being led astray. Or you wouldn't warn us about it. For many will come in my name and say, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And historically, you can look, and it happened. Um, the church in the past 
has lost its ability to speak meaningfully into the world because it drifts from the truth. And historically, it's happened over and over and over again. And when the church drifts from its truth, its moorings of what it's held to, then it just becomes another group of people that don't have anything really meaningful or of substance to offer the world to make a change. Paul warns the early church uh, early on to watch out, keep your doctrine true, stay, stay rooted in what's true. And you go to Revelation chapter, the beginning chapters about the letters to seven churches, guess what we see? Churches drifted from the truth. And they lost their impact. They lost their, their love for God. They lost their, their ability to influence the world. And there's warnings to them. It happens very, very quickly. The great danger is that it's deceptive. It happens subtly. Um, the, uh, the reformers and during the time of Reformation did not talk about we need reform. They actually said the church always needs reforming. Always needs reforming. Because we get in order, and then what we do... We do what we do between Sunday and Sunday. We drift. We drift. It just it, without, without attention to it, that's just natural what happens to us. We drift from the truth. And so we always have to constantly be looking at it and reforming ourselves and aligning ourselves fresh to God's work. Um, interesting, the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people that Jesus was so hard on, they really thought that they were on target. They really thought that they were upholding truth. Um, and they had, they had drifted for so long and had been so deceived um, that they were at peace with where they were, and, um, and yet they were way off, enough so that Jesus actually has said, has rejected them with an underbelief to them. And we don't want to go there. Personally, I believe that the, the evangelical church today is on a, a precipice um, of compromise, um, it's in danger of losing its mooring in the word, um, which the scriptures tell us when we do that, it leads to shipwreck of faith. Um, and we lose our effective, life-giving message um, that the world needs. I, the more I read books, um, even coming out of good organizations, the more concerned I get that we, have, we have, have casually embraced some things that are subtly leading us down to some ways that are not rooted in the word. So we need to be always, all of us, to be aware of deception. And by the way, with the internet and everything, everybody can say everything they want. And it sounds really good, by the way. There's some really effective people out there that are, get word things very well. And, um, and then, but when you sit down and start really looking at it, sometimes it's not so true. Second of all, he says, beware of tribulation. It's going to come. Verses 6 through 8, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. So when we see all this stuff happening, we should go, is the end yet? Jesus said, no, no, that's just beginning. It's just beginning. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Uh, my wife and I lived in uh, Walnut Creek, San Francisco area um, when that big earthquake hit, 89. Um, and uh, I remember that messed up the Cubs and Giants playoff games. But uh, that's my. But I was actually I've shared this. I was in the Concord Mall, which is a mall in Concord, California. It's actually on stilts. There's a park underneath, so it's not real stable. And um, I was in a C's candy store with all those glass shelves, and there's all these nice, really old ladies that were all in there working. And the whole building just started shaking. And I remember the glass shelves fell down, and like all this great chocolates bump 
bouncing on the things and falling down. And one lady said, this is the end. And she sat down on the ground. I'm like, it's not the end. It's just the beginnings of the end. (laughs) Jesus says it's not the end yet. That that these things are just a sign. These are the beginning place. Um, The Christian life for us is not, Jesus did not promise comfort. He did not promise safety for us. He promised his presence for us. But he said tribulation would come. Um, Interesting here that Jesus says to them what? When you hear all this stuff going on, when all this tumult, when there's all this chaos, when trouble comes into your own life and trials come in and the difficulties of life, when we look outside and we just see, see just such tragedy happening around us, he says, what is, his, what is his response? Do not be alarmed, he says. Interesting. He says, don't be alarmed. That doesn't mean not to be concerned, not to be, we're to be concerned for people. We're to, we're to we're pay attention. We're not to be apathetic or uncaring about it. We're not to be, just, just, uh, just remove ourselves from it, like whatever, you know, this is, this is what's going to happen in the world. Um, we are to be compassionate people. But he says, don't be alarmed. And when the church, when God's people are alarmed, it says something about what we think about God, that you can't trust him. Um, And so Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. The world gets anxious and frantic. We're filled with it these days. And we are to be steadfast. So as, as trials and tribulations come into your life and the world and into our own personal lives, which is, can be full of it. Um, Jesus says those things are coming. Be steadfast in those places. Number three, watch out for and be aware that there's going to be persecution. Verse 9, they're going to deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. Isn't this great news for the disciples who are listening to this? And you will be hated by all nations for my sake. I hate it when people are not happy with me. You know, I just, it's like the worst thing. Um, Jesus says, you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The disciples in the early church uh, knew the reality of that firsthand. Besides John, who gets exiled, all the disciples are martyred. Um, They're scattered. Um, They're pursued. Um, All these things happen. We can sometimes either be in danger of, um, in our response to it, I'm going, I don't get persecuted. So what's going on with that? Well, sometimes it's because I've compromised myself so much that there's nothing to persecute. I'm not, I've just fit in. Um, I don't want people to not like me. Our ch- the church sometimes does not want the world to dislike it, um, especially when so much comes against it, and some of it very valid these days. And so we, comp- we can tend to find ourselves just trying to fit in and compromise in ways so that doesn't happen, um, and it doesn't work, um, by the way. Or we can go the other way and be so antagonistic against people in the world that we just create this other whole problem. So they're, they're angry and hating us, not because we represent Jesus, but because we're acting poorly in the world. We're called to be faithful, truthful, um, set-apart people. As Jesus told us earlier, we looked at this, um, when we live out the kingdom of God faithfully, there will be a conflict. There will be conflicts of some kind of nature. Let's make sure it's because we represent Christ, not for some other reason. But there will be conflict because we represent Christ in the world. She says, it's coming. Be prepared for it. Expect it. And then lastly, there will be, I'm not sure how to word this, but a falling away. 
Um, verses 10 through 12. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Um, I believe this is our, probably our greatest danger. Jesus warns these things are going to happen. Perhaps this is the greatest danger. It's an abandonment of the basics of our faith, he, he warns them against. He says, when all these things happen, those who have professed me are going to be in danger of some things happening. Abandoning the basics of the faith. I think, second of all, that a self-centeredness sets in. Um, it's, I'm, I'm here and it's for me, Right? Uh, life is for me. When things aren't going well, what's wrong? It should be for me um, and not for the Lord. Um, we forget that it's all about him, about one another, um, and about his mission. And it becomes about me, and his self-centeredness settles in, and it, 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 uh, it's toxic to my faith and to my message. It says that our love can grow cold for God and for one another. Um, go back in the history of church, and you can see that the love for the world Love for people in a good way and love for God can grow cold within God's people. And it's when it happens, it's really ugly, by the way. Um, it's what Jesus rails against in, in um, Matthew 23. He says, that's not what I came here to give my life for. And ultimately, underneath that, it's a failure to trust God. We become self-sufficient. Um, and when we do that, we have nothing left to offer up a world that's looking for some kind of hope, we can only offer up the same thing that the world offers because we fail to trust God. So he says, when all these things come, grab on to the Lord more because if you don't, um, we're going to drift and eventually we begin to blame God and we don't trust him. This is what Jesus found among the Jews when he came and it's what he warns us of because it will happen to us. It will happen to us if we're not careful and vigilant, um, both with each other um, and being in his word and being together and carrying out his message, we'll fall away, um, our love will grow cold. Um, and the question Jesus, is, I think, says to the disciples is, take heed to these things. This is all going to happen. Don't be surprised by any of this. And then take the steps we need to take to be on track with him. Janice, you can bring the uh, music team up. We live today in an in-between time. Um, Jesus, Jesus knew that it was coming. He knew that between his time that he ascended and today was going to be a long t period of time. Um, we have seen in Matthew that uh, what happened to the Jews during the in-between time, besides some that were faithful, most of the nation had grown cold. They had drifted from the truth. They had settled into a religious life that didn't really have life anymore. And as I said, it can happen to us as well. But there's, there's good news, and the good news is that the kingdom belongs to God and he is at work. Matthew 24, 11, Jesus says, in the midst of all of this, what's going to happen? The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, and it is today, and it's going to continue to, and it's advancing. So we gather again today as set-apart people. Um, each of us that know Jesus are citizens of the kingdom of heaven who, who reside here in this place now called to offer up worship and faithfulness and to engage with the mission that God has put us on. Uh, the deception of believers is happening today. There are tribulations worldwide. There's persecution on many levels, and we're always in danger of our love growing cold, always. So among the, the ways to respond to Jesus' words 
um, is to do one of the things he told us to do, come around this table. It's so simple, and yet it can be so uh, life-transforming from week to week to week to gather around. We remember his sacrifice and the greatness of his grace. We remember again the, the magnitude of his love and his instructions that we should love the same way. We gather, and as we said before, we have the compass needle of our hearts realigned to the Lord and refreshly reminded of the truth of the gospel and our calling to mission. Um, so the table is here and on the side in the back visiting. It's, if you know Jesus, uh, it's, he's welcoming you, inviting you to the table. Um, here at the vineyard, we, we break off the bread, remembering his body that was given for us. We dip it in the cup, remembering his blood that was shed for us. Um, and we do it coming, um, saying, Lord, keep working in my heart. Keep me aligned with you. Keep me aligned with you. And we do it giving thanks. Father, thank you for your, your love, your grace, your mercy, uh, your commitment to conform us to the image of your son. As a church, uh, we, um, we want to be beautiful lights in a dark world. We want to be aligned with you. We want to stay steady on course with what you called us to do. So uh, do that work in us. Uh, be honored as we sing and as we gather around this table. In Jesus' name, amen.